This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 50, where we're talking about the good earth and beloved. First of all, 50? How did that happen? Well, actually, we had 50 a while ago, but... uh, (laughs) This is number 50. Yes. So this is episode 50 of our regular episodes, and this is a great milestone. I mean, we've been doing this for over two years. Yeah. This is pretty exciting, and I think this is a great episode to commemorate 50 episodes. I think so. It's a pretty important award with not big female representation. It's important to talk about. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when we started the podcast, we had these stats on the front of our page, and we've never had to change them in two years. And I keep telling people this, and they kind of get tired of it, but it's true. It just keeps happening. Like, we have three different awards. We have, what, the Man Booker, the Pulitzer, and the The Nobel. Nobel. Yeah. So, and we won't get a Nobel for probably two years. I'm just so, like, you know. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, uh, yeah. So, I guess we should talk about the Nobel a little bit. Yeah. So, as we mentioned in the last episode, 14 women have been awarded the Nobel Prize. The first woman to win it was Selma Lagerlof, and it was awarded to her in 1909. And she was awarded it, and then she became actually a part of the Academy. And so the Nobel Prize comes out of Sweden, and so they call it like the Swedish Academy, and they call them Nobel laureates. They're very into all of this, as you can guess. And there's like this committee, and that's what voting, and you can't actually resign from the committee. You have to pass away, and then they vote someone else in. And there's no, there's no like laws that are like what to do if a person resigns before they die. They just assume you'd be there till you die. So. Anyway, like before, I will put the annotated episode down in the show notes if you want to know the current happenings on why there's no Nobel Prize in Literature this year in 2018 and all that all that's happening. So yeah, that's really exciting. Uh, but like we mentioned, there's only 14 women that have won, and one of them, I think, had to split the prize with someone else because there have been four instances where winners had to split the prize. So even though the award has only been given out 110 times, there are 114 Nobel laureates in literature. So complicated, man. I know. They take this very seriously, but honestly, there's a lot of money attached to this. So you could see why. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And uh, Doris Lessing holds the record, I guess you might say, for being 88, to, and she won the prize. And the prize is actually awarded for a body of work as opposed to a single book. And so it's your influence on the literary landscape. So there are things that you have to have changed the literary landscape for X reason. And, you know, so it's not just a single, it's more like a lifetime achievement award, which is interesting because there aren't too many of those. No, there really aren't. And the list isn't mostly... European writers and but there is Toni Morrison who we're talking about 
So anyway, so the women have not been awarded this prize very much, and that was part of the reason we all, last year at this time we did books in translation, and so this year we thought we would tackle the Nobel Prize. So the two authors that we are, as we mentioned, that we're going to be talking about today are Pearl S. Buck and then Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison. So the first book, or the first person that we're going to talk about is Pearl S. Buck. And she was actually born in West Virginia in 1892, and she was the daughter of missionaries. So she spent most of her life in China, where her parents were missionaries. And her novel, which we talked about in the last episode, The Good Earth, was published. It was a bestseller in the U.S. in 1931 and 32, and won the Pulitzer in 32. And then in 38, she won the Nobel for her work. But she's written other stuff as well. She's written two autobiographies, two biographies, and several novels as well. And The Good Earth is actually part of a trilogy, which I had no idea until I was researching it for the podcast. Yeah, and it's uh, every book is a different generation. So this one is about uh, Wang Lung, and then you have his sons, and then their descendants. And so it's like each generation is in a book. And so it covers like kind of like the scope of history because this is before the Chinese revolution is the good earth. She's written more than 20 novels. That's incredible. I had no idea she'd written so much. Um, It's crazy because this is really the only book that we know of hers, but it looks like she also wrote under the pen name John Sedges. Um, And she also wrote children's books. She wrote a lot of nonfiction. She has like like 20 nonfiction books on her bibliography, including a cookbook, which is interesting. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so she's quite prolific and wrote short stories as well. So as Kendra mentioned, this is more for a body of work. And the reason that the Academy chose her was, quote, for her rich and truly epic descriptions of peasant life in China and for her biographical masterpieces, end quote. And she was actually the first American woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. I just think that's fantastic. Like, I can't imagine, I mean, at the time, you think in the 30s, uh, you have, like, F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of time, like the the Roaring the roaring 20s, and then you go to the 30s, and because you wrote in early, um, early 30s was when The Good Earth came out. And so you think of that time period of how women were treated, and the fact that she was able to come out and write this, is, I think is just, like, the odds... She must have been really amazing because, you know, like they had to be extra amazing for anyone to pay attention to them, unfortunately. Thank you, sexism. Uh, So I was really excited to read this because I had heard so much about it. The Academy also said in their quote or in their whatever, their their statement about the prize that how her works created sympathy for her characters and sympathy for the people that she was portraying. And as we mentioned in the last episode, Celestine wrote this article in the Huffington Post about, which is an apology to Pearl S. Buck. And in it, she talks about her experiences with this book and how, I mean, it was an Oprah Book Club selection in 2004, which is crazy because that is very recent that it was selected for that. And she says, though, in her apology that it's not about the merits of book, but why she finds it problematic. And she goes on to talk about how this book has been used in her experience to generalize Chinese people and stereotype them, which is something that she warns against. But a book with like such longstanding cultural history, I can totally see how that happens, even if it's not good that it happened. 
So we'd both known about this book for a long time, but what were your initial impressions when you finally got a chance to read it? It was a lot more modern than I thought it would be. <laughs> I mean, in the sense of like the word, like the the prose is just astounding. Like it's very fluid. It's very earthy. <laughs> um, I mean, the title is The Good Earth, and a lot of the book is, it is about Wang Lung and his family, but it's also about the earth. And so the way that she describes the earth and the people's relationship to the earth and how they abuse the earth and how they're dominated by the seasons and how they're kind of at the mercy of the seasons was really striking and something that I didn't really expect. I feel like there's definitely a lot of themes about also like land ownership, especially if you contrast that on the backdrop of the looming Chinese revolution, where you or landowners were particularly um, focused on at that time, we'll just say, uh, and that the fact that Wang Lung is such a love of the earth, it's not about dominating it as much as he loves it and even in the end of the book you see that when he's a rich man and he's not supposed to go out and like get dirty because that's what his servants are for or whatever that you see he still loves the earth and that he has this longing to be near the earth which i found one of the more sympathetic parts of his character for sure and the just the, the way that she describes how much he puts into the earth and how much the earth is part of their daily rituals and just kind of how she describes how close how close they are to that. And then there's a section later where they go to the city during a drought and she contrasts that to the the city life, which is completely disconnected from the earth and like the dirt in that sense. And the two contrasts are really striking as well. Definitely. And I think, you know, he starts out, it's a very uh, bookended type nature of, of the book. Uh, there's a very, there's a very symmetrical part of the structure of the book. So in the beginning, we meet Wang Lung when he is getting a wife and he's very excited because he is finally able to afford a, light, a wife, even if she is a slave in the household of a rich man. And so she comes to live and we first meet Wang Lung when he's interacting with his wife for the first time. And he just has such a love and passion for things, which is very interesting. But then you go back and forth because uh, I saw a review somewhere where they felt connected with him so much, but they went back and forth between just liking him to the extreme, but then finding sympathy with him. Mm. He is a complex character for sure. And that was another thing that stood out to me was the treatment of women in this book, because forget the setting and, and <laughs> I mean, that aside, the fact that a book written in 1931, like there are a lot of independent women in this book, women who have agency and women who like take control of their lives. And his wife in particular, she's very resourceful. She's kind of the, the business mind behind the family, even though he doesn't appreciate appreciate that. And so it is with him, like he goes from being completely infatuated with her to kind of being caught up in the trappings of wealth as the book progresses and he doesn't treat her as well. But I thought his wife was, she was a really incredible character. Yeah, I really love Olan and she is definitely, she's had to survive as a slave in the house of this rich man. And she does eventually tell her husband what it was like when he considers selling one of their daughters and he wants her to comfort him, but she doesn't. She gives him the harsh reality of their daughter's fate if he chose to sell their daughter. 
and because they didn't have any money and they were afraid of starving. And at the time, uh, a lot of you know people of the same class were were doing that, and that's how actually Olan came to be a slave. One of the things I did find frustrating, though, is that the way that Pearl S. Buck critiques patriarchal constructs at the time of a woman didn't wasn't even you know a minor in the house. You know, we often talk about women being like a minor in the house. They didn't even have human rights. They were objects to be sold. And he talks about owning his wife and she critiques him by showing we're in his head and it's from his perspective. She critiques him by illustrating of how he views his wife as an object that he now owns her. He finally has the money to buy one and you know, that kind of thing. It was very harsh. Maybe it's because of of the book. The book is dated, but I was very frustrated with him. (laughs) Like, Oh, but she's the smarter one of the two, definitely. And she definitely kept the house together, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when she has her first kid, the way it's described is that she's working in the field and then goes inside and (laughs) gives birth and just comes back out with a baby. (laughs) I was like, oh, my goodness. And And he thought that was normal. He was like, okay, cool. I'm like, no, man. Oh my goodness. And I and she does that like for the second one and he talks about how he finds his children irritating and they don't even become people to him yes. until they're older. And he just views them as objects also that he owns. And I just found that very I mean, it was a critiquing obviously the 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 cult the you know, patriarchal culture at the time uh, of of his particular vicinity. Uh but yeah, I just I did find him frustrating, but what was interesting was I disliked, I would have to admit, I disliked like pretty much the first half of the book, maybe the first two thirds, but by the end, my family saga love kicked in pretty big. And by the end, he has softened a lot and he's learned a lot and he comes to understand how he's mistreated Olan, at least in a little bit. And he feels very sad when she died. Like he, I feel like he definitely learns and grows, but by the time he grows as a person, it's kind of too late, you know? I Yeah, I would agree with that. It was a difficult book to get started with. I think also one thing that was really striking to me about the ending, and I won't give the spoiler away, but you kind of get a look into what his sons are going to be like, and I haven't read the sequel or the second book in the trilogy yet. But it's kind of sad. Like, it's it doesn't end... It ends conflictedly, which to show the complexities of the decisions that people make in general... Uh, was really striking. I think one of the things that she, that Buck did very well was she portrayed this little village and uh, she portrayed this little village and Wang Lung does not know anything outside. Like you don't know where he is exactly in China. You don't know. He mentions both North and South and China is such a huge country. You really have no really idea reading the book and he doesn't either he's an uneducated man farming and trying to make a living and it was a big deal when his sons learned how to write you know and he so i feel like we are seeing the world through his eyes so much so that we have no idea what the landscape looks like either yeah that's true so it is a very focused um, look at a particular place, even like an unknown place in China. So I under, totally understand like why Celestine is very frustrated with people talking about like this book is nonfiction. Like it is like gospel truth about all of Chinese culture when China is one of the biggest countries in the world. 
Right. It's like when we get frustrated when people talk about the South generally, and we're like, no, that's a very specific part of the South. So, I mean, the same applies here. But there's no denying that this book has had a big influence on American culture. And as we mentioned, it was influential in America's involvement in helping China during World War II. So it is definitely culturally important at least to read for context. And I think for me too, I'm glad that I read it in the sense of now, now I know what's in it. Yeah. So now I can talk about it and refer to it and know what people are talking about when they talk about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was watching that PBS special about books and yeah, uh, they were talking about Gone with the Wind and how Gone with the Wind is very problematic in its portrayal of African-Americans. But at the time, this woman that actually had sexual desires and her own independent desires and all of these different things was very rare. And so they were talking about how we need to address these issues with the book and talk about how it's problematic. And then we can move on and talk about how it was important in its cultural context. And I feel very similarly about this book that we can address that it does have stereotypes in it. And it does, you know, it is from a white woman writing about a Chinese culture. And it is, you know, all of these different things that might be problematic, but it was important for the time. And we can still appreciate it for that. I agree. So I, I feel like, I mean, I did steal that from the dude on the PBS special. Um, you can go watch it. It's a great special. But <laughs> so that was The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. Uh, so that brings us to our sponsor spot. And so our sponsor is us. It's our Patreon. And so at this time, you know, our podcast is made possible to you, our listeners, through support on our Patreon page. And this is a passion project for both Autumn and me. And your patronage helps keep the podcast going. And there are some upfront costs about different things. And so uh, we greatly appreciate all of you who have been supporting us, whether that is through Patreon or uh, through just, you know, listening to the podcast and reviewing. Um, but we have several different levels of patronage and starting at just $1. And with that, you can join our quarterly book club. This this quarter, we're going to be reading Attica Locke's The Cutting Season. And we're all very excited about that because Attica Locke is amazing. Just amazing. And so we're very excited to hear everyone's thoughts on that. We had a great discussion last time when we talked about the Essex Serpent. And yeah, it's just a great place to talk with you all and if we are considering different changes to the podcast or different merch we often you know use our patrons as the first place to go hey what would you guys think we're considering these options and they give us great feedback it's like a safe space to try out new things and all of our patrons are just wonderful um so if you would like to support us on patreon you can find the link in our show notes and go check that out and then you have the I next do. Book. So I will just keep talking. So <laughs> <laughs> go right ahead. So we have Beloved by Toni Morrison, and this is out from Knopf. And Toni Morrison is just an amazing woman. I, that is just, she's just such an amazing writer, period. And, you know, she was born in 1931 in Northeast Ohio. And she eventually went to Howard University to get her BA. And then at Cornell, she got her MA in literature. And her master's thesis was Virginia Woolf's and William Faulkner's treatment of the alienated. Whoa. I know. And I was like, wait, this is why I love her. <laughs> she also loves Virginia Woolf. <laughs> I mean, you don't Obviously. spend that much time with, the, you know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just thrilled. 
Oh, anyway, I found that out today, so I'm very excited. Um, she eventually went on to teach at Princeton, and she's won so many different things. Uh, she won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Song of Solomon. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Beloved. She won the Nobel Prize in Literature, which is why we're talking about her today. She also won the National Humanities Medal, and uh, President Barack Obama gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012. So basically, she's done all the things and is amazing, and we don't deserve to live while she lives <laughs> on this planet. <laughs> yes, and she is 87 years old, but one of the funny thing is, is that while she's been nominated for the National Book Award, she's never won. Ah, uh, that's a crime! It is, it is. But I guess she oh won the Lord. Nobel, so whatever. <laughs> that's true. And she wasn't available to win the, you know, the Man Booker, because at the time, Americans, you know, weren't up for it. She could have, I guess, won the International Man Booker, but yeah, I... I just love her, and I think she should even be more decorated because um, I have this project that I've been doing where I've been working chronologically through her novels, and particularly to get to Beloved, quite frankly, because it is arguably her most famous novel. So um, I'm very excited for it. And she writes mainly historical fiction about African-American people, oftentimes between the end of the Civil War and before the Civil Rights Movement, so that... Uh, almost 100 year gap and she's written a wide range of stories in that time period beloved is actually the first book that i've the only book i've read of hers and i started with that one because my book club was reading it i wasn't reading it chronologically as diligently as you were but i thought it was amazing it is really good and yeah, I really enjoyed this book. And this book is about Sethe, who, as we mentioned, uh, is used to be a, formerly a slave, and now she's living in a house with her daughter. And then a man who used to be a slave with her on this plantation in Kentucky comes to her house, and he brings up a lot of memories. And this is a nonlinear narrative. So it's very different, I think, for me than a lot of her other books, which tend to go in a more linear fashion. It's also, I will say that the language is... It's very magical kind of language, so it might be a little bit difficult to read at first or one that you'd have to read slowly. Um, as I mentioned in my book club, people read it, and most people actually seem to understand it pretty fully, and it was a wide range of people, not just bookish people or literary people. So it's possible to do, but don't be intimidated by the language at first. I will add that footnote. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, uh, what were your initial impressions of Beloved? So like my mentioned before, like this one's nonlinear and a lot of people have been struggled with it. I've read a lot of reviews of Toni Morrison lovers and they've often struggled as I, with this one because it's a lot of flashbacks. And so, and it's not as, there aren't a lot of breaks in it. So you just go backwards. It's almost like you, like Sethe, are like swept back into your past to these very fierce and traumatic memories that she has. And like we mentioned earlier on the podcast, there are trigger warnings for violence against women and children. So if that's something you, you want to be concerned with, you can always shoot out us a message and we'll give you any more specifics that you would like if you are concerned about that. Uh, but it is a very harrowing book because as Sethi was a slave and she talks about her life growing up as a slave and, you know, finding her husband and uh, having, you know, her children and trying to escape the life that she was living and. Um, it's a very difficult book to read, but I found it very different because a lot of, I think all of the other books that I've read by Toni Morrison were all set a little later in time. And this is the first time that I actually got a slave narrative, you know, close to it that she was writing. 
So that was very different, but I enjoyed it. I think she did a great job with it. Yeah, she really shows the realities of slave life and not in a way that's glossed over or toned down in history books as it often is, which is hard. Like, it's a very hard thing to read, but at the same time, it's a good thing to read. It kind of is, I would say, in the same category as perhaps like Octavia Butler's Kindred. Would you say so? I would say so, except the I say the primary difference is that that I say in a kindred, Dana isn't from the present and she goes back to the past, but Sethe grew up in it, so her worldview is constructed around being a slave. While we see the contrast in Octavia Butler's Kindred, and so it's kind of almost I, I kind of like more normalized and beloved in that she just accepts that this is the way her life is going to be, if that makes sense, rather than this fierce fight to get back to the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is different in that way. And this was her, I think, fifth novel. So Toni Morrison was one of the first African-American women to really mainstream the experience of, you know, the African-American person. And we think of you know, Zora Neale Hurston was before her, but she wasn't really that popular until Alice Walker came on the scene and like pulled her off the shelf and was like, this is a woman that we need to focus more on. And so we have also Gloria Naylor came after Toni Morrison. Uh, I mentioned Octavia Butler. They were all contemporaries. Uh, but Toni Morrison with the bluest eye really just cracked that door open and threw it wide open, <sighs> threw it open and was like, here I am. I'm an amazing writer, period. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you're reading them chronologically is that what you would recommend people do because like i said i've already killed that because i've started with (laughs) beloved um i would say that sometimes if you're wondering how sensitive you are you could start with the bluest eye which is our first book or you could start with sula and those i feel like are a great entryway because they're not quite as intense as her other books and that way you can see how you feel about you know the sensitive t- sensitivity. And also since Beloved is nonlinear, I might not suggest going with that one. I mean, you can just jump in if you feel like it, and that's, that's great. But if you want to like dip your toe in, maybe start with one of those. They're also shorter. Go forth. But yeah, because I was concerned about the content because sometimes, you know, violence against women and children, you know, sometimes I just can't handle that sometimes depending on, you know, my brain space or whatever I'm in. Yeah, and this one's pretty rough, I will say. And that's part of the reason we're not discussing this book as in-depth. One, because of some of the violence in it. And two, because there's a big, giant spoiler yes. <laughs> that you kind of can't talk about the book and without revealing the spoiler. And we try to be very careful about not revealing spoilers on this episode, which is kind of why we're just generally talking about Morrison in general. And she does have that magical realism element throughout her fiction, which is something we've talked about with Jasmine Ward and Glory Naylor. Uh, and so we've talked about, oh, and Zora Neale Hurston was another one. Yes. So I'm sure Toni Morrison read Zora Neale Hurston and, you know, saw that and just took what she wanted and went forth. Obviously, we know Faulkner was a great influence on her. She loved him and possibly Virginia Woolf, though they seem very far apart, but that's fine. Despite what you read on Twitter, all the great American novelists are not dead because Toni Morrison is still alive. So if you ever hear someone saying that, just feel free to correct them. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and then hand them a copy of, of one of Toni Morrison's books. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my yes. goodness. So, uh, yeah, and I really love the audiobooks, especially uh, she narrates them. She's been redoing a lot of the abridged ones so that they're unabridged. She hasn't gotten to jazz yet 
which is my next one. Uh, this is actually a trilogy, a beloved trilogy that she wrote. And they're th- I'm not sure if they're thematically a trilogy or if there are similar characters. I'm trying not to look so I don't know. So there aren't spoilers. Uh, but yeah. I, I, I feel that. I relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So she's just amazing. And she wrote 11 novels and tons of nonfiction. And they, the Harvard University Press recently published a book of her lectures. And she's just really such a wonderful person that has done all of these different things. And, you know, Oprah Winfrey chose four of uh, Toni Morrison's books for her book club and really actually helped Morrison gain her commercial success. She actually sold more copies with Oprah than she did by winning the Nobel. Which is crazy. I mean, Oprah really has the magic touch. Let's just... Uh, I mean, especially when it comes to women's... Especially when it comes to books by women. And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, a lot of our books end up being Oprah book club picks. Not because we search them out, but just because she really is an advocate for women's writing, which is just great. And I'm so glad that she does. Yeah. And she really picks winners. She chose the Colson Whitehead, which won everything. So All the things. Yeah. Yeah. And Cheryl Strayed's book, that was the first one she came back with when she left the air. She came Mm -hmm. back with Cheryl Strayed. So... I've been very impressed with that. And Beloved was actually made into a movie with Tandy Newton as Sethi. And it was a, one of Oprah's biggest pet projects. And she really invested a lot of, you know, financial uh, capital into it and time and everything. But it didn't do well at the box office. So I'm going to go find it and watch it and support this movie. And, yeah, it was one of the biggest, saddest things in Oprah's producing career. Oh, so. but she's made a comeback in producing with The Vengeance, so... That's true. That's definitely true. Somehow, that brings us to the end of another episode. Yeah, so that was Beloved by Toni Morrison. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode about the Nobel. It was really fun to research it. And there's just so much history there and so much context. And you know, the the list is not a very diverse list at all. But there's still a lot that can be pulled from that list and some good things to read and learn and think about because of it. Yeah. So we highly recommend that you go out and try to find other writers as well, like the ones we mentioned in our first episode or like Doris Lessing. We didn't get a chance to talk about her. We really wanted to, but the Golden Notebook is like... So long. (laughs) 27 hours in audiobook. I checked it out. It's it's really so that's going to be on our list and we will check back with you somewhere either on social media or on the podcast and eventually when we do read it because it's supposed to be amazing it's a life goal to life goal (laughs) so be sure to come back next month where we will be reading memoirs and we've already started reading on these and oh my goodness do we have some great books in store for you next month I'm really, I'm really excited about it. I've been waiting for you to read uh, the my discussion pick for a long time so I'm really excited so too. So that's it from us. So if you haven't already, we would love it if you would rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. If you haven't already, we would love it if you would rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We really appreciate seeing them and it also helps other people find us and it gives a little bump in the algorithm and we greatly appreciate it. And thank you so much if you've already done that. We really love seeing those. And you can also check out our newsletter where we have new books, our most anticipated book releases, which is something I get really excited about. We also have book reviews and we also announce our discussion books first in the newsletter. So you'll definitely want to go check that out. And that will be linked in the show notes. And be sure to join us next time where we will be talking about memoirs. And meanwhile, you can find Reading Women on social media at The Reading Women and at The Reading 
and at readingwomenpodcast.com. You can find Kendra and me at, at Autumn Privet and Katie Winchester. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.